since growing up, we only ever learned how to cook what we knew, what we learned from our mother or what we picked up along the way. A few of us have done courses, but there's no food coach. No one actually yeah. comes into your kitchen and shows you and helps you how to do it. And you know, we want to help you fix that problem straight away. Welcome to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast, where every two weeks we explore all the aspects of the weight loss surgery journey. We'll hear from a range of experts, including bariatric surgeons, psychologists, patients, and dietitians, sharing up-to-date informative advice to help fast-track your long-term weight loss success. Welcome back to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast. I'm Jackie Lewis. I'm your host. I'm the clinical nutritionist for Being Healthy. Have you ever felt bored, stuck or lost when it comes to food? It seems everywhere we look, there's a push towards eating healthy and there's a definitely more awareness of food intolerance and food allergies. But what can be lacking is the how-to of preparing good food when you have specific dietary needs, whether it's for medical reasons or for better health and weight management. Well, whatever your goal, my guest for today's episode holds all the answers when it comes to catering for specific dietary needs, keeping you safe while enjoying top-notch chef-quality food right in your own kitchen. Stay tuned as Adam Rice from the Better Food Bureau ignites your culinary fire again, offering some incredible hints on how to navigate food intolerance while creating flexibility, inclusivity, and most of all, important options. Adam's experience as a personal chef and his tireless passion for supporting those with food intolerances gives some great insight on how you can prepare and cook safe, enticing food at home that suits your specific dietary needs and keeps your happy family happy. Don't get stuck eating spag bol and Greek salad for the rest of your days. Listen up and you'll see we have really only uncovered the tip of the iceberg as far as what's actually achievable for the average home cook. Thanks so much for your time and welcome Adam Rice from the Better Health Bureau. Welcome Adam. Hi Jackie, how are you going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks. It's nice to actually see you. We've talked on the phone a lot, so it's nice to be face to face as far as things go these days. Um, yeah, it doesn't happen a lot these days, it, does it? It doesn't, especially not when you've been from Melbourne over the last few years. <laughs> We've definitely have definitely spent a lot of time indoors. And so welcome, firstly. And secondly, tell me a little bit about, firstly, the Better Food Bureau and how that all came about. I've done your intro and I've introduced you as far as things go from my end, but I'm sure you've got more that we can explore as far as the work you're doing goes. Yeah, sure. So I guess I should start with giving a bit of an explanation of how Better Food Bureau came about. I was working in a two-hat restaurant called Ezard in about 2015, and a customer came into the restaurant that was lactose-free, gluten-free, low FODMAP, and vegetarian, and we had to do nine courses for them on the fly at two-hat level, and we did it, and the light bulb came on, and I was sort of like, what did we do? What did I just do to create two-hat level food over nine courses that meets dietaries that still tasted amazing? And I spent about seven years unpacking it and trying to work out what happens when we eliminate particular ingredients that someone can't have. And then with the list that's left of foods they can, how do we then turn that into palatable, aesthetically pleasing and well-balanced food? And I spent seven years kind of unpacking that and learning how to become a coach so that if I can do it for myself, my belief is that if I can do it for myself, then I can teach somebody else to do it. 
And so what I do here at BFB is we work with busy mums that have got kids with dietaries. And we mm. show them how to put all their family dietary considerations into a plan and turn that into shopping lists, meal plans, eating out guides, prep lists, and all those sorts of things. So that when you go into the kitchen, everything's easy. You've got a plan. Everything's simple, saves a bunch of time, saves a bunch of money, and ultimately makes it much easier for, for you to manage the family's dietary cooking. That's fantastic because you're right. We hear it more and more. We have a lot of patients who call us directly when they're looking at even taking a multivitamin because there's more allergies that we're aware of and different things that people are eliminating for health reasons as well. And some people are doing it for choice and we understand that, but other people are doing it because it's life-threatening, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. A lot of people that do struggle with low FODMAP, gluten-free, lectin-free and all this sort of stuff, if they eat lectins or they eat too much of the fermentable sugars that are in most fruits and vegetables from a low FODMAP diet or even the smallest amount of crumbs or flour for a celiac, it mm -hmm. can hospitalize them at bigger risk death, but at a lower risk, they can be in bed for days. And so the importance of getting it right for those people is paramount. And we've discussed, you know, what that leaves a person who's in that situation where, say, for example, if I eat gluten, I'll either be in bed for a week not going to work or I'll be hospitalized or I have anaphylactic reaction. I think until you've been there or you've helped those people, I guess we need to understand what that would come with emotionally for these people if they're handing over the responsibility to someone else to feed them. So that includes going to a friend's house for dinner, going out for a meal, popping down the street just to pick up something to take home to cook. I guess that's kind of where you come in, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Food fear is one of the biggest things that we have problems that we have to challenge when working with our clients because they've been so unwell for so long and they're trying to test and navigate this process on their own. Although they may have great information from health practitioners, the how-to is where they really get stuck. So there's resources all over the internet for what not to eat for someone that's gluten-free, for example. And they also know that they can't go out to certain restaurants and they know how to about cross-contact and cross-contamination and stuff, but mm -hmm. it doesn't really solve the problem of the doing. It doesn't solve the problem of actually, you know, how do I cook gluten-free pasta for me? And what if dad wants steak and the kid got fussy kids and chicken nuggets and meal prep and all this sort of stuff, but then also subject to personal taste and preference. So, you know, they may love Asian or they may love Vietnamese or they like to eat simple or different family members like different things. And that's very customized. That's very personal. And I found that there wasn't a lot of resources or a lot of information around how to tweak the levers and make it fit for everyone in the family. And so it was my belief and what I'm passionate about is although these people really struggle to go out and eat, if we can show them how to make better food for themselves at home, then at least they can stay home and eat restaurant quality food that's better than they might get out. But then another thing that we do is we teach them about eating out guides and how to actually ask the chef without feeling intimidated, saying, hey, I'm low FODMAP or I'm gluten-free. I need to be particularly careful around dirty spoons and dirty trays and all those sorts of things. So we'll create a plan for them to give to the chef, hey, I'm gluten-free, please be careful of these things and things like that. That's a great point because I think some people feel like they're being difficult or they're making it hard for the kitchen or whatever it is, like a burden. And it's a great way of putting it across and I guess, empowering them to, you know, make their own decisions and help other people to support them as they, you know, they go. Because I guess in restaurants these days, there's gluten-free, dairy-free, and, and we don't know if they're a choice or a necessity. So 
I think the restaurants have to, to treat those people as if it's celiac disease, not just gluten avoidance. Well, that's where the challenge lies because often I've actually found, and we'll talk about this later, we're running a B2B allergen management training program to actually help restaurants to understand this. But a lot of venues we find that haven't been accredited by Celiac Australia, for example, don't really navigate the particular movements around doing it properly. And so that would be, for example, crumbs in the toaster or wiping off the cutting board that's had bread cut on it to cut gluten-free bread. And so that's where people can get really stuck and chefs get really stuck because they think they know or they think that it's clean. They make a mistake and then the celiac can end up in hospital. I actually went to a restaurant a few years ago with two celiac that had gluten-free written on the banner at the front of the shop and both the nearly ended up in hospital because we found out the chef put gluten-free bread in the glutinous toaster. Oh, and it's as simple. I mean, we're taught microbiology as people who prepare food, like food safety around contamination and bacteria and preventing food poisoning. And I think that's a real focus. It's very much on the same level, isn't it, for some people? Very much so. Mm, yep. no, the more I've very spoken to so. you, the more I've understood how intricate that is and how misunderstood in a lot of places as well. Yeah. And from the food venue point of view, which is something that no one's really kind of factoring in, is that one in five Australians are now either low FODMAP or gluten-free. And if those people have food fear, they're not going out. And so therefore, it's going to damage the restaurant industry itself. And so that's why we want to teach chefs about how to do it so that they can market back to those people that are gluten-free, but then creating safety mechanisms mm. and boundaries and processes in the venue for the place so that when they do go in and eat, they feel safe and they can and eat confident. the food and, yeah, and yeah. they've got confidence. Yeah, that's a great thing. So what's the biggest struggle you see when it comes to the home cook managing the family dietary needs? Certainly consolidating all of the information and then turning that into an actual plan. Mm. So when I first started, we were just teaching gluten-free, but then we'd find out that mum's gluten-free, but you know the kids are fussy and then dad wants steak. So you've got a couple of go-to dishes that you know work for the family, but you eat the same thing over and over yeah. again. And after time, you just get bored of what you're eating. And so one thing that I really notice people struggle with is variety and having variety around particular dietaries. And for me as a personal chef that specializes in cooking for families that do have dietaries, in order for me to create variety for them, I have to consolidate all the information. I use a food list, which has got over 500 fruits, vegetables, legumes, seeds, nuts, and grains and stuff. And I get rid of everything they can't eat for the whole family. And then I'm left with a list of what they can. And then I custom create dishes that are suitable for whatever their needs are. It sounds amazing because it does. It takes away that monotony, which a lot of the people who, if you're the person who prepares the food for dietaries, fussiness, different palate, you get to the point where it's just a frustration. And at the end of the day, after you've been at work and you've made all the other decisions, it's like, now what are we going to eat? And if you're not prepared or you don't have a toolkit to work from, even just knowing which staples to have in the pantry so that even if it's six meals that you know how to make well, it just makes it more doable. A hundred percent. And another thing that I notice is that a lot of people sort of shop week by week and they plan week by week. And so if you have a busy week and you know, you're out doing school kids things and might go away and blah, blah, you get to the end of the week and there's no food in the pantry. There's no food in the fridge. And you're like, what am I going to eat? Oh, we'll just go for that same boring old option again. So mm -hmm. what we do is focus on 
filling your pantry full of ingredients of foods you can eat. And then we use that pantry list to create options. And so you can literally go, I want to have Chinese. Great. We've got gluten-free soy. We've got gluten-free oyster sauce. We've got these things. And you can just make it from what you've got in the cupboard. All set to go. I think that's the one thing I promote with our audience is being prepared. It's almost like anything that's needed for those recipes that's not fresh, that's just there anyway, you're organized, ready for it. And then each, you know, maybe week or on a Sunday, you look at sort of your meals for the week and buy all the fresh stuff around it. So you know that A, you'll make good choices and B, everyone gets fed the food that they're going to need to. And I think it just cuts time, doesn't it? Do you find people are saving time by having a plan like that? Oh, so much time, so much time. Because the other thing that takes time is the prep and this, mm. it's the shopping and the prep. Some people love to go shop, but shopping every week takes three hours. By the time you write your list, get in the car, go shopping, run around, chase the kids, get home, unpack it, put it away, that's three hours. And then what you do is then you go, I'm going to do my meal prep, which takes more time, but average plan in what to meal prep can be not as productive because then all of a sudden you've got all this food, you put it away, then you pull it all out again and make your meal prep. Whereas what we encourage you to do Mm. is get it all in, prepare it all, wash your herbs, prep your veg, prep your slaw, prep your salads, get a few things on the stove and then make your dinner so that you cook sort of twice a week and you cook big things, but you cook a multitude of big things that go in the freezer, that go in the fridge, that go for school lunches. And then all of a sudden you go shopping, come home and then do your prep and it just saves you a lot of time. That sounds fantastic. When are you coming? <laughs> ah, yeah, we can certainly organise a cooking I class know. and a bit of a cook-up for you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to doing some more. Like this kind of thing is what people are looking for because that's the biggest moan is I didn't eat well this week because I wasn't prepared or I'm bored or I've been eating the same thing over and over again. And our audience also, they get half a cup or a cup of food at every opportunity that there is to eat. So then it's like coming up with versatile recipes that, you know, maybe you add two more different spices to the same kind of foundational ingredients to make it Chinese or Asian or Thai kind of style. So it means that it kind of gives you that diversity of using different ingredients to make things different, even though they're quite the same sort of found from the foundation as well. Yeah, exactly. And a classic example of how that can work is if you make a slaw. So mm. you can either buy the pre-cut slaw if you're busy, like pre-cut slaw from Woolworths going to save you a bunch of time. But if you've got a food processor that can chop your slaw for you, mm. put it in a tub and put it in the fridge and you can then turn that into a slaw salad, a green salad, stir-fried vegetables, stir-fried greens, put it in a faux and have one thing that has multiple uses. Yeah. You only prep once and then it's so easy just to open a thing of beef stock, infuse it with some ginger and lemongrass, season it with some soy, chuck your noodles, chuck your veg, bang, you've got fur. Done. Oh, that sounds brilliant. I don't know how to make that beautiful stock. I'd need to get some lessons in that as well. It's, <laughs> But it's like it's there and ready to go. It's there and ready to go. Yeah. yeah, and how does the home cook get on top of and stay on top of this, including planning, shopping, prepping and getting it all done and stay inspired? Well, the first thing that you really want to do is get really clear on what the family can eat and what the mm. family like to eat. And then once you do that, I would be personally writing down 100 and go large on 100 ideas of everything that you can like and then find the recipes for that. So in order to do it to stay inspired and not get overwhelmed, each week you've got your favorites. You've got your bolognese, you've got your lamb shanks, you've got your meatballs that you love, you eat every week and you won't change. 
but then if you pick one or two recipes that you want to try, get all the ingredients, get it in your food and just try one or two new things per week. So mm. you try new things, it's very easy. And then you can also continue to add to that and change. So once you learn how to make fish curry, you have that, you made it, you followed a simple recipe, you're like, oh, now next time I can add potato or I can use the base and turn it into beef or I can make that vegetarian or we can tweak and chop and change. And so there are ways that you can get on top of it and stay inspired. But one thing that I really notice is that when I talk with my clients and I say, give me 25 lunch ideas, they've got three. And so what we really want to do is give you a bunch of ideas and have a place where they live so that when you kind of do a shopping list, it's like, oh, I forgot about that fish curry that I saved. Oh, that's right. We can do the bolognese. Because we don't write these things down, we forget them, you know? Yeah, I'm a culprit for this. I Google it and go, what Google give me a recipe. Like on the weekend, Google give me a recipe for Osabuco and I'll choose the one that looks the most appealing. But then I don't keep it. So I think it doesn't remind me that that's what I cook. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. I need a file of things on paper to actually each week drag out and go, okay, I've got my staples. I'm going to have bolognese and we do chili con carne every week. So we've got two ideas and then what else am I going to have and what did I like recently? And if I had that actually printed and put in a system somewhere, I'd go, oh, that's right. And then those recipes you actually learn well then too when you're repeating them. And I think there's so much information available that it's easy to go to Google and find a recipe. But I think unless you're implementing that on a regular basis, you just don't necessarily, it's not ingrained. So you're not learning those and pulling them out when you need them. Yeah, totally. And the other thing that I noticed is the recipe scholars. So there's all these amazing creators on the internet that create great video recipes that even provide a written recipe, but yeah. you sit there and you'll scroll. Oh, God. oh yeah. yeah, donut. Oh, great. Oh, great. Oh, great. And you remember none of it. Yeah. And then you can't find it again. So like I would just open up a notes page and every yeah. time you see it, copy it, paste it. Then you've got it. And then focusing on having all the ingredients in your cupboard. So you've always got almond milk. You've always got gluten-free flour. You've always got these things. And I guarantee like 90% of the recipes that you're scrolling past, Mm. if you've got the ingredients in your cupboard or in your fridge, you could probably get up and just make it. Yeah. I have in my pantry a range of clear jars and they are labeled with what's in them. So then I know what I've run out of because often that's my problem also is I don't know what I've not got and what I have got. So if everything has a place and you have a standard kind of kit of what belongs in that pantry of your staples, your flowers, seeds, nuts, that sort of stuff. Now I can open the door of it and I know what I'm missing rather than going to the supermarket, planning my meals and coming back and realizing I don't have coconut sugar. So it keeps, it's a system that I've implemented that helps me to remind of what we need at the supermarket just by looking in the cupboard. It's simple things like that. So you're right. There's sometimes I can look at a recipe and I've actually got everything I need to make it because all those dry ingredients are on hand and they're stored well. And I'm sure you'd teach them how to do all that sort of thing as well. Yeah, totally. And the other thing that I notice as well is that I think you've almost got to become a professional prepper, Mm, you know, mm. like a professional apocalypse prepper. So (laughs) if your cupboard's got like pickles and chutneys and sauces and the preserved bloody kumquats and all this stuff, and you've got back up a flour and stuff, then on those weeks where the kids are running crazy, you're feeling sick, you're feeling tired and husband goes away and no one can help you. Mm. You know, you've got bolognese in the freezer, you know, you've got pasta, you know, you've got cheese and it becomes effortless. Yeah. And so the other challenge that I find that when it comes to meal prepping is I'll only make enough for one and a half and a little bit left over. 
Whereas I recommend everyone just buys the largest pot that'll fit on their thing and the largest yeah. tray that'll fit in their oven. And everything you do, make three times the amount. Good point. Mm. That's a really you, good point. Yeah. Serve the fam. So there's enough for seconds, but then take it away. And then you've got the bolognese in the freezer. You've got the stock in the freezer. You've got all the things. Yeah. Because you want to be preparing for those times when you're exhausted. You want to be yeah, preparing for those times for. when you don't have energy. And even when the funds are low, you know, sometimes mm. the family budget runs out, but it's like creating your war chest financially for your cupboard. And mm. if you can get to the point where you've got 30 days worth of food in the house, yeah. plus a little bit of produce and some fresh pop-ups, then you're never going to have a problem of what the hell am I going to cook. It's a great point. I grew up in a family of five and oh, mum would do that. She would say, we're not shopping this week. We'll eat what's in the house. And she could feed, we had a chest freezer, but we could certainly go through and there were some interesting combinations at times, but we would not struggle for food and there were six of us in the house because she yep. was the same and I think maybe that's an art that we've lost is that buy it while it's on special and store it. You know, the bulk buy and the splitting up. We used to buy a side of lamb and I'd see her breaking it up into different things and she'd know what she'd make with that. I don't know if those skills are being passed on and this is why we need people like you, really. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And then like sort of going on to cost because we all know that the price of food is soaring. You know, mm. price of electricity is soaring, rent, water, bills, even school fees and things you need for school. It's all going up through the roof. And I find that a lot of people struggle with where to save money in food mm. and not necessarily even buying the beef mince at $12 because it's on special. It's looking at eggplant, for example, that's only like $1.20 a kilo. Buy three or four kilos of it and make baba ganoush, make eggplant curry, make eggplant lasagna and then you don't have beef so you've got more of a plant-rich diet which is in my Perfect. opinion better for us anyway and it's using you know the real trick that i teach people about we talk about is noticing what's on special but how to bulk buy that stuff and make multiple things out of it mm. whereas i think people often get stuck in oh you know the beef mince is 15 dollars a kilo when it's on special but then by the time you buy that bulk it out and make things you've only saved a couple of dollars a kilo Whereas if you see the eggplant on special, which was $7 a kilo and it's now $1.50 because it's yeah. running out of stock, like buy bulk eggplant, make bulk eggplant dishes, you know? Yeah, and you can store that even if you've half prepped it into like half of the curry or whatever you're going to use it for or dice it and freeze it and use it later on. And their skills, I think, also with just apartment living maybe or just the pace at which we expect life to run. But when you've got dietary considerations that are either life-threatening or they're quite medically based, it is important to have those things on hand. And that's kind of where it all comes from, I suppose, is being prepared and having those options on offer. And eating yeah. seasonally will only do good for your health too, won't it? Yeah, 100%. Eating seasonally is also a real good strategy for saving on cost because mm. as things rotate, things come in, the price goes up when they're available because the demand increases. And then as you get towards the end of the season, you know. In November or December, zucchinis are everywhere. Like yeah. they're everywhere. And so the price of zucchini goes significantly down. But then as cherry season starts, the price of cherries is through the roof. But then towards the end of the season, the price of cherries is significantly lower, you know? Yeah. And it's looking for those price points, I suppose. I remember when bananas were nine ninety nine a kilo. And you know then that they're not in season. So it's like looking at what is cheaper and what's at that lower price bracket to kind of guide you as far as how we should be. The Chinese methodology behind food is very much seasonal because it's what our body needs in 
summer, autumn, winter. And I think we're fighting against that with just the abundance of different out-of-season fruits that are available because we've shipped them in from overseas or we're ripening them after they've been stored or whatever. I think it's a real good platform to build your health from as well. Yeah, and I think using out-of-season produce and foods that have travelled a long way energetically lose their value nutritionally and I'm not the health practitioner or the scientist, but nutritionally, I think they're less dense in vitamins and nutrients. I vouch for that, yes. And then also things that have come from Queensland, you've contributed so much to greenhouse gas emissions and those sort of things that just buy things that are local, like, yeah. you know, farm gates. Farm gates, for example, is the best place to go to buy in-season produce that's at a discount because usually it hasn't gone to the supermarket because it's not pretty enough. Yeah. But the farm gates will sell it at their farm and you can buy a box of Roma tomatoes when they're in season for $10. Make your passata for the rest of the year, wouldn't it? Make your passata, dehydrate it, mm. you know, use it in school lunches. There's so many things that you can do, but this is where we get challenges because we haven't made a plan. We go to the supermarket, we see the thing on special and you're like, well, I don't know what to do with 10 kilos of eggplant. Yeah, that's a good point. I saw mangoes last weekend, a tray, and I had the same thing. And I was like, what would I do with all of those? We're a family of three. So it's also looking at how big your family is and where you're going to put that. But I certainly, you know, my mother was so good at, oh, my God, mangoes are on special. Let's buy them and make mango jam and mango. You know, she had a range of different things that you would do with all the different stuff that was in season or we would grow it in the backyard and there would be an abundance of tomatoes for a while and that's what we ate. We had tomato, whatever was going, soup, all sorts of different dishes. The lost art of preserving. Absolutely. The lost art of preserving. And I think it's time. I think there's more people who are working longer and that sort of stuff. But it's also, do you think we need to reawaken our enjoyment of that kind of process? Well, I think that comes down to how you actually balance your food. And one thing that is in our Facebook group is the sensory impact model. We'll show you how to make amazing food with what you have on hand. And Mm. those are using the elements of taste and flavor, be sweet, salt, sour, bitter umami with herb, spice, olive oil, texture and fat. And none of those are dietary specific. And so when we find those elements that are specific for your dietary needs, then we can layer those on top of pretty much anything and make your food taste amazing. And going back to the I'm bored, don't have time, same old, same old, we can show you how to zhuzh up your meatballs. We can show you how to zhuzh up a piece of fish. And it just it's a matter of adding something with citrus, some olive oil, some herbs and some texture. Yeah, it's just understanding it, isn't it? And having them on hand, but also knowing how to implement it. Well, I think you're always going to have vinegar. Yeah. You're always going to have lemon. You're always going to have some herbs somewhere. You know, you're always going to have some spice. You're always going to have something. And so even, you know, as simple as an oglio or olio, which is olive oil and garlic pasta, Mm. olive oil, garlic, chili, parsley, bit of white wine, pasta, you fed the whole family and it's cost you nothing. Yeah. If you want to add some protein for that, roast some eggplant, buy some prawns that might be in a discount, dice up some chicken, you know. Yeah. And you've got the range there. You could make that a seafood dish or a meat or a chicken or fish. A hundred percent. And then sort of going back to the core of the problem that we solve is it's not so much about how to make gluten-free pasta. It's about 10 dishes that you can make with gluten-free pasta. It's about how do I adjust this Sanchoy Bao recipe so I can feed it to my family. It's having 25 school lunch ideas. And so then when you go to the supermarket, you're like, oh, great. 
that's on special. I can put that with that and then that's going to be great. And I can also make bolts. So that'll be good for dinner. And then these sorts of things, it's having a multitude of ideas of things you can do with the ingredients you have got on hand, which is going to increase variety. Yeah. And then you don't just wander around, pick up the same things every week and walk out and go, God, food's not that interesting. And we hear that a lot after weight loss surgery. It's like, I have to have a protein dense Some people are lactose intolerant, others have gluten sensitivities afterwards, and they're not necessarily used to having those reactions. So they have the surgery and then suddenly they're faced with flipping their diet upside down to be less carbohydrate dense and include more protein. Firstly, people are like, what even is protein? So it's like this whole learning and they need to work out firstly how to get that fitted into a small pouch or a sleeve on top of making it interesting and not repeating the same dish over and over again. So it is, yeah, I think it's something that there's such value in understanding how many different things we can make out of a real foundational range of products as well. Yeah, exactly. Like low FODMAP, for example, about 50% of fruits and vegetables, someone on a low FODMAP diet can't eat, including Mm. if someone's low FODMAP, they generally can't have dairy and they generally can't have gluten as well. And I was a personal chef for, two and a half years for someone that was very particular in low FODMAP, also organic, you know, no processed sugar and stuff. And for a year and a half, I did all of their food and I didn't repeat a single dish apart from the dishes that they liked. That's incredible. So it's completely possible, you know, if you're well enough to eat food, then the BFB formula will work amongst anything. It's amazing. And it seems to be, you know, we've lost that skill set of looking for opportunity and diversifying. I think we're also eating out a lot more than we used to. And I don't know if COVID's changed that to a certain extent, there's more entertaining at home and that sort of thing. So I think whether you have a food intolerance or not, you know, someone who does, and at some point you'll be entertaining them or feeding them at some stage. The other really good way to work around that is how I do it is if I'm doing a dinner party, that's low FODMAP, lectin free, dairy free, everyone eats the same. Yeah. I don't create a particular thing everyone has the same. And I've never had anyone say to me that the bolognese should have had onion and garlic. Yeah, that's interesting. So flavoring it up in different ways that would be unexpected, I suppose. Exactly. And by refining and understanding your techniques about how to get the most out of food, that's how you're going to get good food. You don't need onion and garlic to make things taste good. You just need to know how to cook things properly, you know? Mm. And tell me, I mean, we've gone through the whole, how we might eat, how we can offer more opportunity and how to care for our intolerances. If I was looking at really embarking on that with you, how do we get involved in that and what is the process? If you want to get a bit of an understanding as to what we do, join the Facebook group, Cooking for Mm Gluten-Free. And in there, we've got an introduction, we've got our food list, we've got our sensory impact model, we've got food hacks, we'll have eating out guides and stuff like that. But in that group, we host a challenge once a month show you how to get your head around you know all these particular dietaries and make food taste great so we host that once a month $47 and then we've got a six-week meal plan your month program which is $2.99 for group or reach out if you want one-to-one and you want something a little bit more particular but the best place to go is to join the free Facebook group cooking for gluten-free or if you go to the BFB website you can download a free copy of the Nourish Cookbook which is again gluten-free and dairy-free and there's plenty of information in there to get you going. I was commenting off air about your beautiful downloadable recipe book and just how it's so comprehensive and it has a lot of different elements in it as far as teaching you about food, but also how to prepare and do all that sort of thing. And the recipes in there are 
beautiful as well. So as far as a free giveaway goes, I've not seen anything like it in a long time. It's something really worthwhile downloading and exploring because it also teaches you about what's happening. And I think I've seen patients who come to me and they're like, I'm gluten-free. What does that even mean? So then they go to the supermarket, to the gluten-free aisle, and they just end up eating sugar. So it's yep. like we swap out gluten and replace it with other cake mix or brownies or whatever it is. And eliminating gluten doesn't necessarily mean good health if you're going shopping in the supermarket for gluten-free food. It's yep. totally refined. There's a whole lot of different things they're doing to make it feel glutinous. <laughs> or feel a certain way. And a lot of the time it's that they're just replacing the grains or the glutinous input with something that's sweeter or fattier or whatever. So I think it's also about, you know, if you've got those considerations and you're going to be shopping for those and buying pre-prepared options, I think you might end up with, you know, extra things that you didn't bargain for as far as health results go. I think a lot of vegetarians who don't necessarily put that time into planning or vegan diet, you can be a great vegan or you can be a really bad vegan. Oh, but you're you still can be a vegan. A terrible vegan. You can be a terrible yeah. vegan. So it's looking at that is what am I actually doing? I'm making these choices because I want ethical or I'm doing this vegan diet for whatever reason it is. A lot of people are doing it for health. And a lot of it I hear is they're doing it for weight loss because they feel that the vegan diet is a good way to lose weight. But if you're doing Oreos a vegan, if you're doing veganism in a way that's not comprehensive and it's not well prepared it can be quite risky in a lot of ways for your health and particularly for a bariatric patient totally can and you and i have sort of spoken before about there's a bunch of contributing factors around weight loss that Mm. aren't even necessarily food-based you know things like hormone imbalance and burnout and poor sleep and all those sorts of things so people even go gluten-free for weight loss which is a complete waste of time and it's misinformation. And so that's why we work very closely with health practitioners Mm. so that the information that we're giving is food-based only. You know, we don't make promises about weight loss and all those sorts of things. They have to work together. You know, people with particular dietaries need information from a health practitioner Mm. and specifics about what they can eat. And what we do is show them how they can do that while feeding everyone else in the family and saving time and money and enjoying great food in the process. Yeah, that's a good point. And that was my point before. I think I lost my way. But a lot of people have these new understandings of how they need to eat. And then they're kind of left there with that, well, off you go and do that. Even diabetic to a certain extent, they're not even clear what carbohydrates are to us beforehand. And now they've got to do a 15 gram carbohydrate snack. Well, they've got to manage how many carbohydrates they eat in a day. And that's tricky, I think the best of us but if it's health related and you really need to do it why not shortcut it and get someone to you know help you make it interesting along the way yeah totally and i think there's so many amazing creators out there that do great recipes but i've found that a lot of people watch these recipes or they watch it on social media or they download the cookbook but they never do anything about it because Mm. they don't know how to actually implement it all because you know it's quite funny like in our home kitchen since growing up we only ever learned how to cook what we knew, what we learned from our mother or what we picked up along the way. A few of us have done courses, but there's no food coach. No one actually no. comes into your kitchen and shows you and helps you how to do it. And you know, we want to help you fix that problem straight away. And so the free Facebook group is if you go through the resources, you're going to learn enough for you to get by. And mm. if you want to know more, stay in the free Facebook group if you're not ready to work with us. But a $47 challenge, we're going to solve most of those problems with you. and then. 
if you work with us, every week you'll be on a call. And so we can talk about what do I do about the fussy kids? What am I going to do? I've got an event coming up. And so we're going to talk about what you want to do and how to actually do it in a way that's stress-free, that's easy, that's pre-planned and, you know, saves you a bunch of time. It's the same kind of mentality of financial planning. Mm. Create a war chest, create a solid pantry, pre-plan, and then you'll notice once you consolidate all the information, it's less overwhelming because Mm. you're like, oh, I'm only going to worry about making those new Rissol meatball recipe that I wanted to do because I've got the ingredients, I've planned it. But, you know, Mondays are easy because we do this. Tuesdays are easy because we do this. And once we talk about the complexities that are in your home, we can consolidate them into a plan. And then you're like, oh my God, I was freaking out the whole time, but I've already got 95% of the plan in action anyway, you know? Yeah, it's fantastic. And I think that it's next level though too, isn't it? Because we're also exposed to MasterChef and My Kitchen Rules and all that sort of stuff. And food has become something that we do want something else from other than nourishment and energy. We like it to be attractive and we want it to be tasty. And a lot of us don't know how to do that if we have just been taught by our mum or we've just picked up bits along the way. And I think there's so many amazing different skills that we can pick up from someone who's in the profession to just learn, I think, you know, knife skills even. A lot of people don't even know how to select their fruit and vegetables. Like what am I looking for in an eggplant? How do I know if it's fresh? How do I know if it's going to store well? All that information, unless we've been taught. And I think this next generation, there's less of that being passed on. So it's like we outsource everything now. It's like we need to learn how to exercise. We get a personal trainer and we eat so many times a day, but we don't necessarily give it that value of, well, why wouldn't I get someone to show me exactly how I need to do this? Yeah, exactly. And for me, that's why I also find that a lot of people that you know do these weight loss plans and get the surgery and go on the loaf, they try it for a little bit and then it mm-hmm. becomes too much, they run out of options and they don't do it and then they end up being sick. And as you know, these conditions, which can be quite low risk at the start, they can end up as autoimmune disorders. They can end up in a much bigger problem. And, you know, we want to help get to those people early so that they don't get six months down the track or 12 months down the track and they've got a much bigger problem on their hands, you know. Yeah, correct. And it's, you know, that stitch in time saves nine, but it's also food is medicine. So it's, getting all of those nutrients in from a range of foods. And I think you're right. We all get stuck with two or three favorite meals that we like, and they've got a select bank of nutrients in them. So the broader your diet is and the more colorful and diverse, obviously the better it is for your health as well. Yeah. I had a very interesting conversation, obviously, because I work as a personal chef, which is my main source of income. I had a very interesting conversation with a friend of mine who he's got plenty of money and he loves going out for dinner. But when he goes away for a weekend, for example, if he goes away with 10 friends and they all go out and spend $200 a head on wine and food and blah, blah, you've also got to deal with the people in the restaurant and organizing and transport. But if you were to have a personal chef or learn how to cater for yourself at home, you have all your friends over, you cook the food you want, everyone can relax in the space they want and saves you a bunch of mess and mess and time but then everyone has a much better time. And so if we can teach you how to create amazing food for yourself at home, have your dinner party, have your friends over, and it's a much better experience. And going back to you say about food is our nurture phase, the sharing of food and the providing of food that brings us together in this form of nourishment, you know? Yeah, it's a very social, you know, I don't think we realise how much psychologically, emotionally and physically it's wrapped up in how we eat and how we come together to eat, I think. If it's every time we go to eat, it's like a drag or it's 
you know, I'm worried about it or I don't know how to do it. It just makes it too complex and unattractive. Yeah, and also we have to acknowledge that we are going to go through phases where we can't be bothered, mm. where we're not appealed by food, you know, whether it's our stomach or life stress or work stress. But if we can pre-plan the times, we like to focus on planning for the times when you can't be bothered, you don't have funds, you're not feeling it. So mm. that when that happens, you're all over it. And it's like, I've already got that thing in the fridge. I've already got bolognese. I just need to buy some pasta and everyone can eat, you know? That's great for our community as well, because often it is that it's all the different things that we have to keep in the air around lifestyle and food after weight loss surgery as well. So to simplify it and keeps it front of mind, I think, which is really important. It's a no brainer really, isn't it? I think it's a really yeah, well, easy way to kind of bring it all together for you. Yeah. Why wouldn't you have a chef? You know, if you've got a family of five or a family of seven, that's a lot of food. Yeah, it is, isn't it? That's a lot of food. And so if yeah. you've got a chef that can help you show you how to take shortcuts without compromising on flavor, mm. then yeah, why wouldn't you? Yeah, I agree. Thank you. I think what we're developing here between the two of us is another platform of nutrition, make it easy, make it kind of top level and, you know, teaching and educating about how to do food that's um, enjoyable and also easy and at your fingertips. Yeah, we want to be able to go in, you know, I really love the idea of some of the clients that I worked with before, after we do one or two sessions, they're like, I just went in and created the best pasta I've ever made in my life. And it took two minutes. You know, and another thing that I found as well is that we spend so much time chopping, like roast whole carrots and cut them up at the dinner table, roast whole eggplant and cut it up before you serve it, roast the whole cauliflower. I try and minimize the amount of chopping I do as much as I can. And admittedly, I'm a chef and I do chop and prep quite quick. For busy mums and busy, like roast whole vegetables, and then you just cut it in half at the table when it's soft and serve it like that. Yeah, roast the whole carrot and then cut it in half or even serve it and just crumble feta and herbs on it, olive oil and lemon with some nuts. So nice. That's a good point because that stops me is, oh God, I got to make dinner. Oh God, I got to cut it all up. We eat more vegetables because I buy a kit that sends me the recipe with the vegetables in it. And I, every day I go, oh my God, here I go, I've got to cut up the veggies. And it's not a big deal, but it's, it's one of those hurdles that if it was just put it all full into the oven and away you go. I think there's a lot to be said for baking in our days because you can stick it in the oven and go and do something else. And at least you're getting two things done at once as well. Yeah. Well, once you start prepping, if you're going to prep a basic salad and it takes you 20 minutes to chop it up and then it takes you 20 minutes to clean it up. Yeah. Whereas if so you, you just chuck, a, whole, eh, chuck a couple there. of whole eggplants in the oven, have a nice crumble, some pomegranate molasses, some feta, you know, some mm. something, something to garnish again, like going back to this seasoning and balance idea of using yeah. herbs and feta and olive oil and stuff, just roast whole vegetables and make it, dress it up so it's nice and no effort required. And it's knowing what elements to put together. Like you've just said, pomegranate molasses and a bit of feta. And I'm trying to bank that in my memory as we do this. (laughs) But it's right. It's like you get to the point where you just grab whatever. You've got your different combinations of things that you can easily put together and know that they taste great because chef told me so. (laughs) Yeah, because you know how to balance food. You know that putting herbs and olive oil and lemon juice on something with a crumble or some nuts or some sugar or something that's how you're going to make your food taste better. We know, yeah. A while back I did a recipe videos of here's your 500 grams of turkey mince. It's great, it's high in protein and it's very lean. And we came up with about six different ways to make 
something out of it. And a lot of yeah. it was make it Italian, make it Asian, make it, you know, Moroccan. It's the spices that you bring to it that make it totally different experience. And then, you know, whichever veggies you pair with that as well. So it was a real example of here's 500 grams of turkey mince. And our audience have trouble with, well, now I've got 500 grams of mince and I can only eat 20 grams at a time or 40 grams. What yeah. am I going to do with the rest of it? But when you've got that understanding of different cuisines and different combinations of flavors, it's very easy yeah. to see where 500 grams of turkey mints can oh, go. Turkey burgers, turkey kofta, turkey bolognese, turkey curry. Like, yeah, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah. And then you can portion that. You can make turkey burgers and turkey kofta and turkey bolognese. And then you probably would need more than 500 grams. You yeah. know, and it's having one ingredient with a bunch of different ideas to do multiple things with. That's what's going to save you the time. That's what you want. And if you're doing it for $49 a month, is that right? The challenge is 49 bucks, And then the six-week program is $2.99 for our group coaching. Yeah. But you've got to join the challenge or join one of our cooking classes. We've also got yeah. $7 cooking classes starting next month. On Have the you? Yeah, 7 bucks. That's so, great. Yeah, come and do a gluten-free cooking class and you get a copy of the cookbook and You'll get everything to do and we jump online and we jam out. But yeah, That's if you great. want to do the two ninety nine work with me, jump in the challenge or jump on the challenge or jump in the cooking class or, you know, send me a message and let's get you going. I'm very careful about who we have in those work with me programs because it can be a little bit overwhelming and it can be a little bit of work. And so mm. we only want to make sure that we're going to help you win, you know. Yeah, that's a great point. I meant to say too, all of the links and information for Adam Rice's work from the Better Food Bureau will be on the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast website under this episode in the show notes. So anything we've talked about today, if it's of interest to you, you'll find all of Adam's contact information and social media links and everything in the show notes on the website. So yeah, thank fantastic. you. I'm aware of your time. It's been, I think you and I could talk food for as long as we've got, really. It's fascinating to open up the opportunity. I think food for, particularly for bariatric patients, can be a real chore. And we do recipes on kind of sneaking in protein to different, you know, upping the ante, I suppose, as different ingredients go. But, you know, when you've got other kind of dietary requirements and limitations, it's well, you know, I need more protein, but I can't do dairy. So how do I do that? And you've got the answer to all of that. And it's somewhere to go like in between dietitians visits and that sort of stuff. It's that ongoing education that is the patient's responsibility to sort of look for different ways of getting excited about food. I think it's not a chore. Yeah. And you're really going to get benefit if you decide to double down on what ingredients you can have. Mm. Can't have dairy, used to only have cream and milk. What about nut milk, almond milk, oat milk? coconut milk, what about yeah. almond feta, what about lactose-free cheese and all these things that we don't think about, we don't try. But one of the tricks to what we do is substituting. So mm. for example, if you can't have egg whites, you can use aquafaba. Yeah. And if you can't have flour, we need something to thicken. Mm. And if we can't have eggs, we need something to emulsify for a mayonnaise. And that's where people get stuck because they're like, well, I can't have mayonnaise. I don't know how to make mayonnaise and I don't even know where to go to look for mayonnaise, you know? Yeah. And that's what leads to that very narrow diet is I don't do dairy. So I just wipe everything out that used to have dairy in it and not necessarily look for what can I have that makes it the same, but has the right ingredients in it for me. Yeah. And a lot of people, we yeah. just don't know that. And I think we're living in a time where we've got such great access, like 25 years ago, if you were gluten-free or dairy-free and you went to the supermarket, there was limited options. 
Um, and now, gluten, which has got... There wasn't even a gluten-free option section in no, the supermarket. No, but also I think you just go to the veggies, go to the fruit, go to the deli and get out of the supermarket as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there's yeah. so many options now. There's so many options. And people are obviously worried about cost, but if you get clear on low FODMAP stuff that you actually do need but you can't make yourself, like a low FODMAP curry paste, mm-hmm. I recommend doing that so that like the things that take time, like bread and curry paste and pasta and those things that take time, buy those things yeah, and then you can make everything else. And so then you're going to fit within your family cost as well, your yeah. family budgets. There's a lot of ways around it. And I think just from listening to what you've said is, shows us what we don't know. Do you know what I mean? It's like we do need to find more information and places to go to get that sort of support and nut out what can I do and can't I do. It's just a fast track way to, you know, getting where you need to go. It's brilliant. Yeah, we only ever grew up learning how to make a few really like Western food cultures, very simple, roast yeah. meat, lasagna, meatballs, you know. Did you live in my house? <laughs> I lived in my own house. <laughs> Sounds the same. <laughs> yeah. Mum used to make this zucchini slice. It was her go-to. And sometimes it would be like wet and mm. runny and sometimes it would be dry. And it wasn't until 20 years later that I realized that sometimes she would wring the zucchini out and sometimes she wouldn't. The time she forgot was the time that the bloody zucchini <laughs> fritter went flat. And was it's like pretty a soup. sloppy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Zucchini soup with a bit of egg mixed through it as well. Well, thank you, yeah, Adam again, Rice. From the, no worries. From the Better Food Bureau. My other question to you was how long did it take you to spell bureau? Because I've been typing it in the last couple of days and I've used spell check every time. <laughs> it's really funny that that name came from a competition. So I rebuilt the website and I didn't have a name. Originally, the brand was called Alishare. We rebuilt the whole website and I didn't have a name for it. And I said to the marketing agency, I'm going to hold a competition for whoever comes up with the business name and I'll buy them a dinner voucher at a two-hat restaurant. And they gave me like 500 names and Better Food Bureau came up and by order of cancellation, that's how the name came up. Oh, there you go. It's brilliant. It's got a nice ring to it as well. And I'm sure we'll be hearing those three words more and more as time goes on. Thank you, Adam Rice. I really appreciate your time. Fantastic, Jackie. Great talking. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And just before you go, we would love to hear your feedback. So please give us a rating and review. For other interesting topics of conversation and inspiration, come and drop into our Facebook community at BN Bariatric. If you've enjoyed our podcast, we hope you will share on your Facebook or Instagram and hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.